welcome to the Welsh Music Podcast. I'm James. And I'm Neil. How's it going, mate? Very good. Still a bit tired from the week. Where did you been all on? <laughs> Long trip, wasn't it? To North Wales, but very worthwhile. Yeah, definitely. Went up to, um, well, I flew up to Anglesey and met you there. And mm. then we spoke with Oz Gwynedd, who runs Recordia Kosh, as well as a, an artist in his own right. And then the uh, the punk legend that is Reese Moyne. Yeah, um, kind of reminded me of Dave Owens in a bit. Like, just an absolute natural storyteller. And uh, as I say in the episode, really, I, I I really think we only scratched the surface with him. He's got so many different stories. And uh, just doing research on the pod, he just pops up with so many different Welsh acts in some way or another, you know, whether it's record labels or support acts. And just like in his house, it's like a little bit of a museum, you know, pictures of him and Joe Strummer and, yeah. you know, incredible. All the posters from the Revan days. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. You'll definitely go back up and speak to him, uh, yeah. maybe a part two. And um, those episodes will be out in, in, the, in the coming weeks. So what's going on this week, mate? Yeah, exciting week ahead, actually. Uh, independent venues uh, week. Um, yeah. There's lots of exciting stuff going on all around Wales. Um, and we're going to a, a cool gig next week. Yeah, we're going to go to, um, I think it's part of Steve Lamack's homecoming tour. So uh, they've got um, artists going back to where they're from. And we're going to Club Evil Bach to see Griff Rhee, supported by the likes of Panic Shack, um, Lucas J. Rowe, who we've yeah. covered on the, the Welsh Music Prize episode. Um, so it should be a good night and, and a great week, you know, promoting independent music venues across the UK and hopefully get people out of uh, their dry January slump. Yeah, make sure to uh, support those independent uh, music venues. Uh, some great stuff lined up. And um, we'll be at uh, Club Yvobach uh, two nights later for Mr. Uh, Mark Roberts. Oh yeah, of course. Um, supported by Surreal Kinnock. Yeah, um, he's a mate of mine actually, the bassist, uh, Dan, and um, they've uh, just released uh, their single uh, Bipolarism. Um, and it's produced by Daff from the Super Free Animals and it's yeah. on Strange Town Records. Yeah, so another great episode in the bag with um, another great guest, Claire Marnie, who uh, who wrote the book um, Welsh Mod about the mod scene in Wales. Um, she's a music journalist and, and, and makes a living from, from writing. Yeah, she's been a great supporter of the podcast, got in touch with us, recommended loads of guests, put us in touch with loads of people and I was like, well, why don't you come on and talk about the mod scene? Because it's not something that I guess either of us are quite uh, au fait with. Yeah, Claire was um, just exactly my sort of person, really. Bonded with her straight away over music and formed a rapport. Um, even like two minutes in, you know, it's just chatting at the bar. We started talking about the real people. And um, she recommended a band called Revolver, who are a yeah. uh, British 90s band who I've been listening to a lot recently. As ever, thank you so much for your, your feedback and um, support of the podcast. If you would be so kind as to, uh, to to recommend it to a friend, if you or someone you think would be interested in it, subscribe and follow on, the, on whatever platform of your choice. Leave a review if possible. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for your support. We've got some great guests coming up who I think you're going to be really interested in um, across all genres of Welsh music. So uh, make sure to keep an eye out in the coming weeks. Jochen Randall. So Claire, thank you ever so much for joining us on the Welsh Music Podcast. That's all right. Thanks for asking me. No problem at all. So Claire, if you can talk about your, your earliest musical memories, um, have you always been a mod? Well, not since I was born, obviously, but um, <laughs> at around the age of 13, I was with my friend and her elder brother. This is often the way, really, that, you know, a kind of elder sibling or whatever, or an elder friend, um, you know, play some music and you like it. And um, he was playing uh, Secret Affair, who were a kind of mod revival band um, up in the bedroom. And I was thinking, God, this is good, because obviously at the time, it was that there was a lot of horrible eighties music around. So um, I got into Secret Affair, and he'd, he'd turn up on his scooter and um, just looking really cool with his Parker on or whatever. And I just thought, oh god, I like the look of this. This is a bit different. Yeah. So I kind of got into Secret Affair, and the album Glory Boys was kind of the first album of the kind of mod 
era really that I got into and then I discovered the jam and that was obviously a massive turning point for me and then I'd only been kind of into the jam for a couple of years and then Paul Weller decides to split them up <laughs> so, <laughs> it was a bit unfortunate but also around that time I think you know the age of kind of 13 14 I think most people if they're going to get into music that is the age that you discover it and I think whatever music you discover at that period in your life I don't think ever really leaves you no and kind of defines really the kind of course of the type of music that you're going to be into, whether it's indie, soul or R&B or whatever, or jazz or whatever. And also around that time, my uncle, he used to stock um, jukeboxes in the 60s. And so he had all these bags full of records without their centres in. Um, and he gave me this huge bag full of stuff. So there was Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, Sam and Dave, um, Supremes, Beatles, Stones, early Stone stuff. I wish I still had all of this. That's amazing, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> what, amazing. What a haul, that is. I know, absolute haul. Uh, he took some of them back, actually, when he realised they might have some value, unfortunately. So I used to kind of siphon some of them out. But um, yeah, so I, I just sort of you know, made my way through all these records and everybody used to par around my house and the driveway would be full of scooters and we would all be up in my bedroom listening to all these 45s, you know, stacked up on my little Fidelity record player. So yeah, so that was my early teens and that kind of kind of set it really for me, what, you know, what I was into. And when did you first see the jam live? That was 1982, November the 29th, I think it was, and that was in Port Albert um, and I was 14 and my mum took me down to Westgate Street. Um, I boarded a coach on my own, which now I've got a 13-year-old daughter I cannot believe she let me do but thank you mum for letting me do that and I met a load of friends there best gig I've ever been to and I've been to lots of gigs since then that's a great start though to yeah. your, your gigging career yeah absolutely what was the feeling like at the time I know uh, Weller's dad was famously uh, the jams manager and he couldn't believe it that Weller was breaking up the jam what mm. was the feeling that, you know, I suppose it was like horror at the time that he was breaking her up and going with a complete left turn to that with the style counselor. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, I think um, it depends really where you kind of enter the kind of Paul Weller story, really. I think jam fans were notoriously loyal and there was such a close relationship between the band and their fans. I mean, they would let fans in for sound checks, you know, I mean, I was a member of the fan club and you'd get your letters back and everything. It was always a really close connection. So I think there was utter shock and disbelief and some people went with it but um i found particularly difficult you know when speak like a child was released and you saw paul weller and mick talbot dancing around and max on the bus um with tracy having a picnic having a picnic you know lying by the river with their tops off i just thought what the hell is going on here you know because the jam were basically post-punk and that's what i loved about them i loved their energy i mean i I did like the style council that he wrote there's some fantastic material that i really adore and cafe blur was a wonderful album i think it was just while i was ahead of his time um he was always moving forward and still is and have you still got the you said about the fan clubs there have you got the letter from weller or yeah 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 i've got a little folder (laughs) (laughs) i've even got a box of matches that they used to give out these little presents now and again a box of matches with the jam written on which were never used little letters that you get from paul because i was he had this lovely well he probably still has this lovely handwriting really kind of um fluid and artistic looking handwriting and he used to sign off stay cool clean and hard at the end of his his letters which um yeah it was wonderful and his, his sister nikki who um, I've now met and kind of got to know, which is just blows my mind, really. She used to run the flan club with Anne, his mum, and um, it's just bizarre how it all comes full circle, really. And I saw that you uh, you met him at uh, Cardiff Castle gig last year. Was that the first time? Yeah, well, no, yes and no. I did meet him briefly in London at a club called Madame Jojo's in London. He That was before he gave up the drink, and he was DJing with a kind of soul DJ, soul R&B DJ called Keb Daj, um, and we went to this gig and 
and and um, me and my mate were quite drunk and we said come on let's do this so we shook his hand and I just said oh thanks for everything or something ridiculous <laughs> you know you don't know what to say no. but he was off you know he was off his head really and I think it was when he just met Hannah and I think you know that those kind of drinking episodes were kind of plastered all over the papers at the time but then obviously meeting him properly and seemingly sober at Cardiff was well just amazing and also have an access all areas pass and go backstage and and see the kind of dynamics of a, a gig like that how it works um, I mean I wrote about it in a little blog piece and then to go backstage I think the, the best bit for me I ironically was actually walking up backstage Weller and the band are already waiting to go on and I was kind of last because I, I I don't know I think I'm all the excitement and Weller looks at me and he gives me the nod you know Weller gives me the nod before we go back <laughs> on set. it's like as you walk on stage I mean just mad and yeah and then to watch the gig in Cardiff you know with the castle there it was all just a bit too much as you can imagine and how did you get hold of the uh, access all areas past the bet there was thousands of people jealous of, of that well I was very fortunate um a friend of mine Kirsty who whose dad Neil Jones was the name in corner well I think the pass was um, originally for for and Andy Fairweather Low um who couldn't make it that night because he was gigging and um so I went in with Barbara Lowe which was lovely you know yeah. because she kind of looked after me <laughs> she was used to all this kind of yeah. VIP access all areas <laughs> stuff she was chatting to Weller like an old friend you know so that was really lovely to spend that time and I think it was great because she understood the excitement because yeah. she's you know she's a seasoned gig goer you know she just she's just got it so she kind of took me under her wing that night so that was really lovely so was it a better conversation the second time you met him yeah yeah we did have a chat it wasn't just um you know it wasn't just so all right can we have a picture it was um no we had a chat and and um and i probably said some really stupid things like i remember saying i remember touching his arm and go you you are real here aren't you i said i know this is really naff but <laughs> it's just and then we talked a little bit about meeting heroes and like you know it doesn't matter how famous you are I said it must have been like when you met Paul McCartney you know when for anybody anybody's going to have a hero so we yeah. talked a little bit about that yeah so it was it was really it was really nice to have a chat and he you know he wished me good luck with the book he really likes the book he's been sent a copy before and he was very kind to um take a photo of himself with it he was, re he was really nice. They say, don't meet your heroes. God, yeah. Can you imagine yourself at the age of 14 in Port Albert thinking he's going to, you know, Well, like I did. I did, I, I, I did think that, you know, but that's just, just, just great, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, there's a great picture of him holding your book. It, yeah. It must have meant so much. It yeah. is a nice, yeah. Well, Nikki Weller sent that to me and um, I remember I got it in the morning because she said, oh, I'm seeing Paul tonight. I'll try and sort it out for you. And I woke up in the morning, my phone went ping and I looked at it and it was from <laughs> Nikki. And I'm like, yes, you know, my mouth open thinking. I can't quite believe this, you know. So, yeah. And you were with um, our upcoming guest, Sue Charles, that night. I think who's talking about yeah, the fairies. Sue, yeah, yeah, Sue was there. Yeah, so I left, I left Sue in the crowd. I'm sorry, Sue. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I went backstage. But yeah, so yes, yeah, Sue, Sue's obviously um, a big a big fan as well. So. Yeah, I bet she was green with envy. I know she's a big music head, Sue. So yeah, I bet she was, <laughs> I bet she was a bit jealous of that one. So you talked about like the, the scooters on the driveway mm -hmm. and, and, and your friend's Park, uh, obviously the two really important parts of the mod scene. What, what would you say was your, your sort of favourite part of the scene? Is, is it the fashion? Is it the music? Is it the rallies? The, the, the community? Um, I think definitely the music for me. 
always has been um and through the jam i was kind of led on to other bands like the who and the small faces and obviously through the 60s records that i discovered my mum was a big music fan or still is so she turned me on to kind of jazz and yeah so definitely definitely the music um and then I, I guess the kind of fashion followed but i think at that age anyway you're kind of looking for a bit of a identity i mean i we were very lucky in that era that we had salt cultures we had punk we had um mod we had skins we had rude boys and rude girls you know i mean i went to um a private school in Cardiff which was unfortunate really and I hated every minute <laughs> but I was the only mod in the school and my best friend was the only punk which just, just <laughs> we were a real comedy pair you must have stood out we did yeah so there's me with my sort of badges and stuff yeah but it was about you know just trying to find an identity so I at that time I just used to dress like a boy and wear loafers and um, you know tight fitting Brutus jeans and Harrington jackets and Fred Perry's because that was very much the mod style at the time of the revival and obviously as as times moved on sort of later on I kind of got more interested in well in the in the, my late teens I kind of got into psychedelia a little bit I started listening to bands like Love and obviously got into Sgt Pepper's and later Beatles stuff and well going on a mad adventure into Neil Young and Bob Dylan and then jazz and you know so but for me all that stuff kind of links in with modern modernism and the kind of that whole idea of constantly moving forward which I think Weller completely understands. Yeah. Did you um, witness any of the violence between the mods and the rockers firsthand at all? Not rockers, no. Skinheads is that, that's who we fought. I, I spent many a Saturday, you know, watching people being chased or being chased myself up and down um, arcades in Cardiff. We used to all hang around Queen Street um, outside Boots. I think Boots is still there. There used to be these sort of kind of hexagonal shaped flower beds. And we all used to sit there, and you would literally see like a hundred green parkers standing around. You know, there were just hundreds of people it was amazing really but um i've always had a bit i still have a bit of a fear of skinheads because they were really nasty um i noticed when i was doing the research um in one of your interviews it may even have been with um our friend dave owens uh, actually um where i was quite surprised to learn that um you've got a bit of a love-hate relationship with the mod scene you said that you're not alone in that sort of sentiment what what, what did you mean by that um, that's kind of, I think, anybody that's, um, and I think Paul Weller's probably said the same, it is, it is a bit like that. It can be a very kind of picky scene, you know, about clothing and people can get very kind of anal about it. And, and you know, oh, there's nothing mod after 1962. You know, this isn't mod, that isn't mod, you know. It can be very like that, but it can be very, very precious. So there's kind of, you know, a very kind of old school attitude to it then there's an attitude to do with the revival where people haven't really moved on from the revival so there's lots of different schools of thought in mod so i think you know sometimes people you get it like anything you love if you get a bit close to it sometimes you kind of think oh do you know what i'm fed up with this so i think it's just that it's a kind of like thin line between love and hate thing you said you got a 13 uh, year old daughter who you, mm-hmm. you'd be aghast uh, if you wanted to go down to put albert to a gig yeah have you passed on your musical sort of taste to her yeah 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 she knows all the words to all the small faces songs yeah she's uh yeah ever for, obviously she'd had music on all the time and she's you know it's really good because she's really into music nice. like massively she plays she had an electric guitar for christmas and she plays piano and she likes indie music or she calls it alternative so we have discussions about well what's the difference between alternative and indie and i said well she was indie when i was growing up but she's it's alternative i said alternative is an american thing <laughs> so we have discussions about why 
it's not you know whatever but it's all alternative to her so um yeah so she's into some some really cool stuff really and it's great because it it means i can listen to new stuff as well but she also knows amazingly i'll stick something on when i'm listening to my old music as she calls it and she'll go oh yeah i know this you know and it'll be some like motown track or something it must be really annoying having me as a mum because constantly she'll play something i go yeah the shades of the who in that they got that from there or they got that from you know this or they got that she's got a mum you know because she doesn't want she wants it all to be new and fresh of course have you ever owned a scooter yes yeah yes i um not when I was young. I, I, I drove a few scooters when I was young, yeah. mainly over fields, but I didn't have it for very long and it, it spent a lot of time in, in the garage. I actually learned to, I did my tests on a motorbike because I didn't have the scooter at the time, which was completely different. Anyone who's ever ridden a scooter and ridden a motorbike knows that it's completely different, you know, the way you ride a motorbike, which was absolutely terrifying. And I kept getting stuck on roundabouts um, and then had the scooter, which was really heavy. It was a, a Vespa, Vespa PX125 and it just so heavy and getting through all the gears and everything was was an absolute nightmare so um I, I didn't really get on with it and, and it was almost like I got it when I was too old and I think you know when you've got kids and stuff you just think oh god you know the traffic's really bad what if I do something you get a bit more cautious so yeah. I, I wish I got one when I was younger but I would like to get another one but if I did get one actually I probably would get an automatic but there you go that's another story <laughs> do, you, do you manage to get to any sort of reunion nights now yeah yeah I do I mean not so much I used to be out like every weekend or it, there is always something to go to I mean there's a massive absolutely massive mod scene in the UK people don't realise really I mean there is literally something to go to every weekend and if you have the time and the money you, you could be having a, a whale of a time so you know for probably the last eight years I probably went to the Isle of Wight or Brighton every bank holiday you know and we, we would go to things um, well locally um, I've still got a few events that I go to there's an event coming up in Bristol in March a mod weekend uh, where they've got big boss man playing who are, who are great I think the keyboard player lives in Wales as well what about the scene in Wales how's, how's that looking yeah, it's still it's still pretty healthy. I mean, there's not so many events. There's quite a good soul scene here, but traditionally, the the, the scene in Wales generally um, in, in the 80s was uh, massive, particularly in the valleys. You know, which we're going to talk about in the book, really. And and I think that's what's quite interesting because obviously the kind of geography of the valleys meant that you had the kind of tribal nature of things. Anyway, you know what I mean? You know, I don't know. Something would happen in Merthyr. Like Merthyr wasn't a mod town. I think we mentioned Johnny Owen before, and because um, he's in the book, and yeah. and he said, you know, you literally he would come down to Ponty or somewhere else and then you'd get home to Merthyr with trying try not to get your head kicked in because, you know, Merthyr wasn't a mod town. So yeah. it was very, very tribal in the valleys. Yeah, I think Merthyr had a real prominent punk scene, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And skinheads, I think. Um, are you a fan of any sort of more recent sort of mod-inspired bands? Yes. Um, Stone Foundation, we've kind of followed them really from the beginning. Um, I saw them um, in Cardiff when they were supporting the specials very kind of early on, really, just as they were kind of at the beginnings of kind of making it. They're more of a kind of soulful band. And I remember meeting them backstage. I think I must have been reviewing the gig or something. And we went backstage and I was chatting to them about the scene here. And then one of the local promoters booked them and brought them back to Cardiff. And um, they've played here several times now. But obviously, you know, now Wellers recorded with them and produced their albums and stuff. So it's interesting how all these things are really closely knit and all these artists are really connected and have been influenced by the same people. I mean, I remember in, you know, with the whole kind of Oasis Blur thing, just being completely inspired that, you know, you feel so vindicated that the people that you liked when you were young, they're now going, oh, hang on. Yeah, this is great. And you have this other little mod revival, you know, with the whole Britpop thing. Yeah. 
Any Welsh bands we should know about? Not that I can think of. Well, there was the the riff. Yeah, yes, from Swansea. I mentioned, but I think they've just split up, which is a real yeah. shame because they were amazing. I remember seeing them at the Tram Shed supporting. Um, I think they were supporting from the Jam and their their own material. They started to do more of their own material, which is great. But they did um, a cover of um, the Who won't get fooled again, and I just thought, Jesus, you know, this, they just totally blew the place away. And the, the Tram Shed is is a big big venue, you know. So yeah, I'm I'm gutted to hear that they. Do you think it'll ever happen? Happen the jam reforming? No, it shouldn't either. No, it will no. never be as good. Huh? I mean, the, from the jam, just not the same, is it? No, I have seen them a few times, and after the initial kind of feeling of thinking, oh, this is great to hear all these songs again, and Russell Hastings does, you know, has shades of Paul Weller about him. Um, after a while, I'm just thinking, oh, do you know what? Actually, when I go there, I feel a little bit depressed afterwards. Yeah. I think, do you know, this is wrong. Yeah, it's like picking a saw. You know, <laughs> it's like I should leave. I'm not going to do this again. Yeah, I had the same feeling the second time I watched him. I was like, I'm not really into this now. No, there's something a bit sad about it, isn't yeah. there? Mm. So we've obviously spoken about your book, but before we get on to it in, in, in depth, you also write for Mod Culture and, and the new Untouchable websites. Talk about like how you got into writing and, and what, you, what you're working on. Um, well, I kind of started out wanting to be a music journalist and I, when I was in Cardiff and I was writing for gig reviews for Venue magazine. And then eventually I moved to Liverpool and I started working in newspapers and then ended up in... Well, I did the journalism course here in Cardiff and then ended up in London. And now I kind of, my main job, kind of pay, pay the mortgage job is um, I work in the business press, really. Yeah. So the kind of mod kind of music related writing is very much a kind of my chance to write about things that I love and I've yeah. got an interest in, you know. And the book kind of came out, developed out of that, really. Were there any sort of mod type bands when, in your time in Liverpool? Not really, but um, we, we, when we were chatting before before we were recording this, we, we sort of said about the real people and cast and um, the Lars, their elected cast, and that kind of period um, was brilliant. And, I, and, and there's obviously elements of mod in that. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the kind of mod revival bands such as the the Chords and the Purple Hearts and the Merton Parkers. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they were just, they were rubbish compared to the Secret Affair and the Jam. But, you know, in that kind of late 80s, 90s period, I think there was some fantastic, it was a fantastic period for music, for British music. It really was. Um, and for me, th- those, um, I mean, like, look at Ocean Colour Scene, I suppose they're the most mod of all those bands, really. But that era was just, and the Verve, you know, I love Richard Ashcroft. I, I think that period is... Um, a kind of golden age, really. Yeah, because it, it gets a bit of um, a divided sort of opinion, the whole Britpop era, but I suppose, I, I, you know, the frontrunners of it are, as you say, great sort of, it's, it's a kind of like a rehash of the 60s, but still great music. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the 60s is kind of portrayed in one way, I think, um, by the kind of mainstream media. It's all about hippies and psychedelia and um, not a lot else, really. But um, when you look at some of the, you know, 60s beat bands, British bands, um, aside from the Beatles who everyone and the Stones who everyone talks about, and that that legacy, you know, has just been carried on, really, throughout the generations. I think they set the kind of template, really, for, for, for everything that's followed. So let's talk about the book, Welsh Mod, Our Story, a beautiful photo book. Thank you. Documenting the roots and the revival of the mod culture in Wales um, from the 60s. Um, how did that come about? You talk about obviously, you know, writing for the website and your passion for, for the music, but um, how did the actual book itself, the idea for it come about? Initially, I um, I used to go on to Alan Thompson's um, radio show, Alan was a, an old mod who's sadly no longer with us. And I started, I went on there first of all to talk about Northern Soul. And then he quickly realised that I was into massively into mod as he was. So every time it was something to do with the Star Council, something 60s related, anything like that, I'd go in and chat about it. 
and Al and I were just talking about, you know, about doing something more with it, really. And we talked about doing a documentary idea, which we filmed. We did some interviews from. We interviewed Mike Peters because he was in a band called uh, Seventeen before the alarm. And they did a song called Bank Holiday. I think it was Bank Holiday Monday or something. Okay. Anyway. But um, so it, that was kind of the seed of the idea. And then um, just the difficulty of getting something like that commissioned from a Welsh point of view was quite hard, really. So um, lots of other people that I knew, I, I was involved in writing the forward for a, a Kickstarter book called um, Ready Steady Girls, which is about yeah. girl, um, female mod, mods. And um, we just looked at the, the crowdfunding model and thought, actually, this might be a route to, to doing this. And obviously I knew Hayden Denman, the photographer on it anyway. So um, it was very important that to me to do a, a really visually stunning book not just a book full of kind of old archive photographs you know because at the end of the day you can you can see those on the internet any way you want to on any kind of Facebook forum or Instagram feed so I wanted something that was a really nice high quality coffee book table book you mentioned that you you didn't think you were going to get commissioned do you ship it around um to to publishers um, we did a little bit, yeah. We t- we tried with the BBC Wales, but um, probably not as much because the thing is, I'm a print journalist, so I think my experience is more to do with that, really. Yeah. So, but it's still um, that and other ideas is kind of still on the back burner. They're still yeah. there, floating around, and we're kind of hoping that maybe the book will give rise to more yeah. of an interest in the kind of Welsh side of things. I think the the view at the time was that oh well, this is a national story, but it's like well, actually, yeah, but that's been done. Yeah, nobody's. Exactly really done the Welsh side of it so and um, as you said absolutely stunning photography by um, Hayden uh, Denman uh, BAFTA Cymru winning um, cameraman photographer how did that collaboration come about then you said you knew him originally was it yeah I've, I've known Hayden for about 20 years anyway um, and I've worked with him on other I've kind of written things for his website and written th- things for other exhibitions I mean he's gone over to Patagonia and photographed over there he's photographed anyway at Tribes so he's always kind of photographed um kind of alternative sort of people do you know what I mean people it's kind of like subculture kind of people counterculture kind of people um and his, his style is very kind of documentary based and it's quite cinematic as well I mean a lot of people have said to me oh were these new photographs then because sometimes the pictures actually look like they were taken in the yeah. 60s so I think he adds that quality that depth to the pictures so for me he was you know I'm just so glad that he agreed to do it because I said do you know do you want to do a book about mods and he said about what I said about mods what are mods and it was funny because this week we did a lecture at the university and um, he started talking about mods and scooter boys. And I laughed because I just thought, I went, oh, you've learnt something then. <laughs> because, you know, he was going, oh, there's different types of mods and da, 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 da. You know, so, but um, yeah, he just thought, what are mods? But <laughs> so, yeah, but he really got into it. And I think um, we, we met such a broad a range of people, different age groups doing it. Um, I think he really, really enjoyed it. In the book, you talk about how the South Wales Valley sort of spawned a, a revival in, in, in the mod scene. Why do you think that was? And, and, you know, what was the, yeah, maybe what was the reason behind that? Well, I mean, there, obviously there was a revival in the late 70s, 80s, and, and, and particularly that was particularly strong in the valleys. But what I soon discovered when I was kind of um, looking into the book and people coming out of the woodwork was this went back much further to the 60s, and particularly Pontypridd, because obviously it's kind of location on the way down to Cardiff. It was kind of a meeting point for people who were heading down to Cardiff to gigs or whatever. There was a few kind of Italian-owned cafes there where people yeah. would meet up, which we photographed in. Um, and, you know, for generations, where people people would would meet there yeah in the 60s there were still um 
pockets of, of mods. I mean, it was the valleys were mainly kind of rocker or greaser territory, but there were there were little villages where there were literally streets full of mods, you know, and we interviewed um, some people and I remember this particular guy up in Wattstown and he kind of got into it into the late 60s, but his members as a kid, you know, about 1963, people at the end of his street hanging around with their radios, you know, in their kind of Levi's. Um, there were scooters about and you said, well, this street was mod, that street was rocker, that street was hippie. You know, it was very, very tribal, but they, you know, they were very kind of outnumbered, but that was the whole point really. Yeah. And um, you speak to some really sort of influential um, people from the scene at the time, mm. uh, Welsh-born fashion designer Jeff Banks, obviously uh, Amen Corns Andy with Affair with the Low. And uh, the band, uh, the Eyes of Blue. Um, what really struck, and uh, Johnny Owen as well, the mm. um, uh, filmmaker and director. One thing that really struck me was the sort of collective enthusiasm about the scene and the nostalgia attached to it. Uh, that doesn't really um, happen in like other scenes, really. There's something really unique about the mod scene, I think, that people really sort of look back fondly on it. Yeah, I think it's because, um, well, I think it's the most, I think I put somewhere in the book, maybe it's the Britain's most enduring subculture. And I think it is. If you see an old punk walking down the road, 50 year old punk, it look a bit ridiculous. I mean, some mods look ridiculous, <laughs> but I think you can get away with it. I think it's because it, it is enduring in terms of the style. I think the style transcends time. Yeah. I think, um, I think the music does as, as we discussed, you know what I mean? I think it's, there's still a relevance. I think it kind of set down a kind of precedent really that, that still, looks good. I mean, you know, you can still wear mod type gear. People, you know, you're sitting there, is that a pretty green jumper there? You know, yeah. I'm checking we're, we're, out. You've got a nice little turn up on your jean there, you know. I mean, all these things, you where do you think? This. Yeah, of course. This, this is where, you know, this is where these things kind of started, yeah. you know. I mean, yeah. the kind of American GI look was very influ influential. I mean, you see, I went into, it was when I was doing my Christmas shopping, I went into Next, and there were all these kind of 50 style, kind of John Smedley style type Tops, you know, rails of them. And I thought, this is mod, you know. So it's <laughs> it doesn't really go away. You know, it is part of our culture and it's a very British thing and we should be very proud of it. So Neil mentioned a lot of big names you featured in the book, mm -hmm. but um, obviously it's not just the big names. There's lots of people that people might not have heard about. Yeah. Was that a sort of conscious thing that you wanted to give other people a voice as well? Absolutely, yeah. It was, um, I wanted to have a mix of people, um, but I wanted them to s sit side by side. You know, I remember one of the guys, the original mods that we interviewed, uh, when the book came out, he just, he was blown away by the fact that he was in between Jeff Banks and Andy Fairweather Lowe. He said, you know, never in my life... Would I think that would happen? But yeah, I think it was really important to um, give these people equal weighting in the book. Um, and I think the nice thing about the pictures is the pictures kind of elevates people, you know, that aren't famous yeah. to be famous in their own, their own right. But when they were mods, they were probably were famous on their own doorstep. I mean, there is a notoriety. I mean, the whole thing about mods, you know, the term a face is somebody that's known in the mod yeah. scene as about being kind of top mod or whatever. Um, it is kind of about that notoriety about being seen and about one-upmanship and stuff. So, yeah, it was it was a conscious decision, definitely. And, and what we're trying to do with our podcast is sort of like tick off our list, the people we want to speak to. Did you tick off your list? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. everyone you wanted got... Not quite everyone. Okay. Not quite everyone. Yeah, there was a couple of people that were a bit elusive, but, you know, I completely understand why. Because it, it's a big ask to to be in something like this. It's not, it's not a website. It's not... Um, a magazine, it's not something that's going to, you know, potentially disappear. A book is around, you know, this book now is in libraries, 
in the British Library. That's I mean, it's just, it's just mad, isn't it? You know, um, but that is what's uh, the beauty of it, that, you know, these people's um, life stories, their memories, I mean, some of the, you know, one of the guys, I mean, in fact, a couple of people passed away during the production of the book, you know, so we didn't get to speak to them or didn't get full interviews. Um, you know, some of these people are older. Um, you know, they're not, these stories aren't going to be around. These things aren't going to be around forever. I mean, we did a section in there on the um, Italian cafes because obviously that's part of the kind of... It, 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 the whole Italian suits, Italian scooters, that's all kind of part of mod culture as yeah. well. And in Wales had 300 Italian cafes at one stage, you know. But the cafe that we actually eventually shot the pictures in closed down a couple of months after, you know. So that was probably one of the last pictures of that cafe yeah. ever taken. So it kind of goes beyond the mod scene. It's kind of, it's it's documenting some sort of Welsh social history. So I think it's quite important from that point of view. Yeah, definitely. And lastly on the book, where can our listeners buy the book from? Um, well, they can buy it from us at welshmod.co.uk. They can get it from Amazon or they can get it from their local bookshop. Any plans for a sequel or a, a next sort of iteration of a, of a book? There are plans. Yeah. There are plans. So, yeah, we've already kind of got ideas for um, a couple of other projects and also documentary projects, which I cannot disclose right, right now. But, yeah, there are... That's um, it's been a great experience, a great learning curve. Um, and, you know, we're thrilled with the, the way the book's kind of been taken on by everybody. And, and the fact that over a year after publication, we're still talking about it. It's still got legs. It still seems to matter. So, um, yeah, definitely going to do more stuff. So at this time, Claire, we tend to ask um, our guests what their favourite album by a Welsh artist is. And I know it's a, it is a tough ask, but um, what, what have you gone for today? I've gone for Round Eamon Corner by Eamon Corner, okay. which was their debut album. Yeah. I felt obviously with the with the book and everything, I had to kind of choose something that <laughs> yeah. was kind of mod related really and, and, and of that period. But obviously having interviewed Andy Fairweather Low for this and interviewed Isa Blue, I had to do so much research into, into those kind of Welsh mod bands. And even though Eamon Corner aren't really a mod band, I, I'd say that um, particularly with this album, it's a very, very soulful and blues sort of album and, and Andy Fair with a low style of singing and Eamon Caller were basically um, a great um, blue-eyed soul band. Do you remember the first time you heard it? Not the first time I heard it, no. But I remember, because I was thinking about this today when I was playing it and just putting some notes down for this, in that bag of records from my uncle was Ben Me Shape Me, which, you know, obviously I loved at the time, but this didn't make any connection yeah. that this was actually, you know, these guys had hailed from, well, some of them had hailed from Cardiff, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? And they were, they were a Cardiff band, which I wish I'd known at the time. And then, you know, when I was then, I think, God, about 10 years ago, I remember buying one of these sort of mod compilations and the Expressway to Your Heart was on there. And it's like, oh, okay. And then you start joining the dots, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's just and also it's got loads of covers on it which is a bit it's a bit of an odd choice from that point of view and that there's only kind of two um original songs um by Eamon Corner on there and the rest of the covers I mean there's an Elvis cover on there Love Me Tender the Gin House which is their which was their first single is on there and that's a cover that's actually a song from 1925 that was written which is phenomenal really Andy Fair with a low can just kind of turn that voice to to yeah. anything I think and there's um Our Lovers in the Pocket which is just a great kind of northern soul tune they're great songs but um they're also to me they kind of epitomize that period in the 60s kind of first half of the 60s before well let's say before Sgt Peppers because that probably is the album that turned everything on its head yeah. where it was very commonplace to be covering other songs I mean, you know, even at the time that, I don't know, Ben Me Shake Me, I think, was in the charts. I think another artist was had recorded it and released it in America. You know what I mean? So it, it wasn't uncommon to have a song 
by one band in the charts in, in, in the UK and then another band, you know, it was just... Like the Outsiders? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I think it kind of epitomizes that time. But um, so the, I chose the album not so much for the songs, more to kind of illustrate um, what a great band Eamon Corner were really i mean they were supposed to be a phenomenal live band i mean even before they were signed um they used to gig up in london and apparently um they were really skint and they were really struggling up there and uh their fans up in London, when they said they were going to go back to Wales, actually protested, you know, and, and we did, there was some sort of march or something in London <laughs> I was reading, you know, because they said, oh, no, you can't, because they were such a fun live band. Um, and obviously then they were signed and the kind of rest is history. I mean, they, you know, they were quite a short-lived band, but um, I think they were just a great soul band and probably one of the, you know, one of the best kind of soul bands of white soul bands, anyway, of the of the 60s period. You mentioned that um, obviously it's a, it's, a, it's a large collection of cover songs and it mm-hmm. wasn't unheard of for that no. to be, you know, at the time they did an Elvis song, but not an Elvis song, the Elvis song. Yes. That's quite a brave decision, especially for your debut album. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, Andy Fairweather Lowe, I just think he's just got that, I just think he's got that confidence. He's just got that, I think artists that have got soul in them and they can deliver I think they they know how to own a song and I think he obviously knows how to own a song and he's not you know you've got to own a song if you're going to do something like that and he does can't be shy about it and he's got such a unique voice which he still has which is absolutely phenomenal I mean you know it's like he's it's kind of this soft voice, but it looks like it's like he's smiling yeah. when he's singing. I can't describe yeah. it, but it's so you will always know it's him singing, and uh, yeah, it's just phenomenal, really. But completely make them into their own songs. I mean, there's yes. um, "Can't Get Used to Losing You," which is um, the crew and Andy Williams, yeah. but completely owns it and yeah. Yeah. makes it into Different, an even corner, yeah. corner act. Yeah, that's it's just lovely, and and Gin and Gin House is the same. I mean, I think Gin House is a is an amazing record. I mean, I've got that on. 45 as well I picked that up in a record shop in Ludlow or somewhere yeah just an an amazing I just think it's it's just brilliant you know there's so many great soul and R&B records out of the time but to have a, a white and Welsh artist deliver like that and still deliver like yeah, that yeah I mean that's something that struck me like it's such a soulful voice mm. but then when I think about it I think my god this guy lives just on the road you know road yeah. in Cardiff yeah. Yeah. and um, you know obviously they're named after um, the weekly disc bin at uh, Victoria Ballroom they're very close to the sort of Cardiff roots yeah. and, uh, that's part of the magic really I think as it well. is part of the magic yeah and and having obviously met him through the book he's um, I mean I've seen him out and about at gigs over the years as well you know I think he's just very down to earth very lovely chap it's funny because you know obviously he's friendly with Weller he's played with Clapton George Harrison all of them really Roger Waters I mean but he's very very down to earth and very supportive you know I mean with this project he didn't have to get involved with that but he was so supportive bless him he took a picture of himself with the book when the book came out yeah he's he's good as gold you know and um, as well like you know when I was doing the research I noticed um you played at Sapphire Gardens, um, Jimi Hendrix yeah. and Pink Floyd. I mean, what, what a yeah. lineup that is. Well, that was a thing around that time. They used to do these amazing tours where they would go on about, you know, five or six artists would, would go on tour. And um, yeah, Sapphire Gardens, was, um, they, played, they played with Hendrix a few times at 
the speakeasy yeah. in London they were they played with him I mean to be able to follow that I mean you know to go and be on the same bill as Hendrix is phenomenal really well I, I've only really got sort of familiar uh, I mean I know the big stuff that Eamon and Cormoran have released and, uh, but um, I've only really got familiar with uh, their wider sort of catalogue in recent years and um, I went to Paul Weller's uh, Saturn's Pattern um, concert in November 2015 and yeah at the time it was quite strange because he came out to sing um, If Paradise is Half as Nice and Weller and you could see them Weller and uh, Steve Craddock were more starstruck yeah seeing him and having yeah. him on there on the stage then than the other way around yeah yeah they absolutely adore him you can really tell that you know and um it's just amazing that he's so down to earth but that is such a beautiful song um i mean i've been fortunate enough to see andy perform that acoustically at a kind of uh well gig gig here at chapter where we're recording this it's just one of those songs it's just it's an amazing song that's really sort of stood the test of time and i think people have got a real fondness for it and reached number one in the charts as well in the uk and there's not many bands from cardiff let alone wales that can say that no but you know obviously at the time and andy talks about this in the book that they weren't really it wasn't a big thing about being you know i mean this the whole point of this podcast is about welsh music but you know god 20 years ago who cared yeah you know, you you remember, you know, I mean, before kind of Cool Cymru and all that stuff, you know, before those kind of bands like Catatonian that kind of blazed the trail. I mean, nobody would listen, would they? You know, no. you, you had to get gigs in London. I mean, I remember going up in backs of vans with bands that I was trying to support down here, you know, just for the love of it, you know, as we've all probably done, thinking, oh, come on, you know. Yeah, have a, have a listen. Have a listen to this. But they didn't want to listen. I mean, you know, Johnny Owen will tell you the same. Yeah, Pocket um, Devils. Pocket Devils. And it was the same, obviously it was probably worse in the 60s, you know, they would always be billed as probably from London. Yeah. Um, I noticed in um, the book, um, it says about um, the Welsh mob band Eyes of Blue, yeah. and um, they had sort of frustration at the time that uh, the record company was pushing them to a sort of more commercial sound, not so mod and I suppose the, um, I suppose Amen Corner had the same with like the amount of cover versions. I, su- I, I suppose the lucky thing with Amen Corner is that the, the, the cover versions that they chose were genius and yeah, that they they really sort of lasted, had a lasting legacy more than sort of say um, Eyes of Blue. What do you think? Um, I think um, it was a combination of things really. I, um, the whole cover version thing was just very common across across the board with bands at the time. I think Eyes of Blue and Name and Corner were around the same sort of period, really. And I think music changed so much in the 60s from the period about 67 onwards that bands like the Small Faces, um, you know, with Ogden's Not Gone Flake, with the Beatles, with Sgt. Peppers, there was a real change. So unless you were with a record company that was prepared to go with that, you know, you weren't really allowed to write your own songs. You know, at the end of the day, they thought they'd have someone that was going to write a song for you and they knew better because all they wanted was a hit. So, yeah, the bands, they didn't have that much um, control over these things. Um, I mean, the, the Eyes of Blue were uh, phenomenal, really. Um, but they went, you know, unlike Aim and Caller, they split up in 69 um, and then went on to do other things. But... And the, and the same with Eyes of Blue. But these the musicians within both black bands have all remained, you know, having f- amazing musical careers and work with amazing artists. I mean, and that's the thing I'd say about both bands, that they're, they're incredible um, musicians. I mean, you look at Eamon Corney, you look at um, the drummer, went on to play with the Bee Gees. I mean, Jive Talking, that's a Welsh drummer. Yeah. What's his uh, Blue Weaver, the keyboard player. Um, he replaced... Um, 
Rick Wakeman and um, and then it's just amazing and and um, Ray Taff Williams the guitarist with um, the Eyes of Blue you know he went on he's played with all sorts of people I mean you know they are phenomenal musicians so they've still kind of carried on they're all quite closely linked really which is quite interesting I think from that era it, it is a little bit of a source of frustration for me though because I, I was listening to the reissue of uh, Round Amen Corner and there's some great Andy Fairweather low B sides yes, included on it and you yeah. think oh, it's like four think, extra yeah, tracks yeah, yeah. yeah if they were included on the album I just think it's a sign of the times. The record companies had so much kind of control and, you know, the the bands would get ripped off, you know. I mean, they, they were later signed to Immediate Records, you know. I think they kind of got free of the clutches of Don Ard and it was like notorious for ripping bands off, you know. I mean, even bands like The Who, you know, nobody made any money in the 60s, you know. Um, these bands, you know, they were just completely ripped off. So it's whether you could kind of weather that really, you know. Um, I mean, you know, it's the same with the Beatles. The Beatles stopped touring, you know, they'd had enough. So I think it was just characteristic of the music industry at the time. And it was a shame, really. Yeah, I was going to say, like, Eyes of Blue on the same record label as, as Amen Derham, Corner, Derham, yeah. the first album. But yeah, as you say, it's, it's endemic of that industry. And we talked about, obviously, Bad Finger in, in a recording with um, Gavin Fitzjohn and mm. obviously the tragic story that that was... Uh, you know, sort of the greed of of, of individuals, yes, not yeah. just entities and, and corporations. But um, saying about Badfinger, actually, there, there's a real warmth and sort of earthiness to the record sound, whether it's with the guitars and the drums and the production. That's that instantly takes you back to that late um, 60s, early 70s. It makes me think of um, All or Nothing Small Faces. But also, I, I found listening to this week, you could feel like little bits of like Badfinger, like Baby Blue and that sort of thing. It's that real sort of nostalgic sort of, takes you completely back to that period. Yeah, I think um, something that obviously having to listen to Eyes of Blue, Eamon Corner and obviously researching that sort of period of bands from Wales, I think there's definitely an element of soulfulness and a real kind of heart that comes across in, in, in those bands, in both bands actually, which I think is particularly um, something to do with, well, their Welshness really. There's a real spirit you know, that kind of, that, that seems a common feature, definitely. And it's a completely sort of joyous album. I mean, there's, there's two back-to-back tracks, Good Time and Let the Good Times Roll. And it, it does oh, make you feel happy as soon as you yeah, hear it. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. And even um, the playful sort of vaudeville, scar, sort of hybrid, um, Judge Rumpel, Chrysilla. Yeah, well, that's like, one of their own songs. That reminds yeah. me of um, Small Faces. It's like some of the tracks off Ogden's, you know. There's definitely lots of other influences there. What what other sort of highlights? I mean, uh, I I thought with um, Expressway to Your Heart, the first time I heard it, actually, I thought the record was jumping. You know, the, the re- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's a great. It's team. not it's not one that you want to have on in the car. I've actually that's happened a lot actually when I've had that on a car. I'm thinking, what what is there a fire engine? Yeah, yeah, yeah with the, the horns. <laughs> like but um, yeah, that's fantastic. I think Our Lovers in the Pocket is probably oh, my favourite. Yeah, it's song. just a it's just the way he sings it. I said it's just that kind of smiling vocal that he has. It's it's just it's wonderful. And Gin House, I'm particularly fond of. Um, I just think there's this, you know, it's um, it's a great soul and blues album, and um, I think it really stands the test of time. Yeah, like something you got is a bit of a highlight as well. I think for me, um, bit like stacks, yeah, very soulful in terms of a, a well, from a ba- from a ballad point of view as well. And there's some real sort of gospel sounding stuff yeah, on yeah. there as well, you know, the sort of keys and stuff on there. So it's, it's, it's you know, there's a real mixture, but it's not it's not done with a light touch. It's done very authentically, you know. Yeah. The one thing I was thinking about, I, I wasn't. I, it's, it's very joyous and very um, eclectic, obviously, because it's, it's, it's a lot of covers. Do you see it as a traditional album or a collection of songs? 
I see it more as a collection of songs. Yeah. You know, yeah. It feels a little bit like a greatest hits collection. Yeah. To me. yeah. Does, Which it? obviously they, they did later on. Yeah. But um, no, I do see it as a, but I just think for me, it just represents a particular time yeah. in music. Obviously, um, we talk about Andy Featherweather Low and he had a very successful solo career. Did you follow him as well? Um, not particularly, no, no. I mean, I've learned a lot about him actually, because I was, uh, you know, I, I kind of only got into music, obviously, you know, in the late, 70s early 80s that was my era so the kind of 70s kind of passed me by really so it's been interesting to kind of rediscover some of his music you know and appreciate it I don't think I would have appreciated it at the time because the 70s was just like another planet really (laughs) well early you know the early part of the 70s and obviously that's where you know bands like the eyes of blue and that and and um, when Andy you know when Eamon Corn was split up and then they went on to do other things that's that's the kind of music they got into so um it's been quite nice actually to discover it retrospectively you know and appreciate it for what it is yeah well, Claire, thank you ever so much for joining us today. And um, we really appreciate your time um, and obviously talking through the book and Amen Corner. Yeah, thank you ever so much. Pleasure. Thank Cheers. you for having me. Usually at this point, uh, we showcase an exciting new uh, act, which we'll get to in a moment. But as we've been talking about Claire's um, book, uh, Welsh Mod, we'd like to give a shout out to another great uh, book that's out now. Um, it's called Pop Hack by Kevin McGrath, who's a great writer actually for Wales Arts Review and Buzz, amongst other publications. It um, has got interviews with like legendary acts like uh, Van Morrison, Peter Hook, The Go-Betweens, but also um, some really exciting Welsh acts like Boy Zuga. Climbing Trees and Dan Betridge. It's out now. Um, Amazon's probably the easiest place to find it. And um, all royalties go to the Vlinger Cancer Centre. So not only will you be supporting a great um, Welsh writer, but also a brilliant cause. Right, moving on to uh, showcasing in a uh, exciting new act. And this ties in nicely with uh, the episode where we've been talking about all things mod. This is actually a cover of Amen Corner's number one hit from 1969, If Paradise is Half as Nice. It uh, actually features Andy Fairweather-Lowe on backing vocals, um, and it's a group that um, their old saxophone player is behind, uh, Alan Jones. And yeah, this is uh, If Paradise is Half as Nice by the Debutons. (laughs) 